Dignity of man and the Town Scottsdale, high above Old Town Scottsdale in Scottsdale, Arizona, from the Scottsdale Financial Center. You're listening to ComedySchoolsRadio.com. I'm Tony Visick. It is a little after 9 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. We got off to a little a bit of a rocky start, mainly because I'm uh, I'm full of juice, man. I'm full of tricity. I've uh, got myself all uh, juiced up on tricity, and uh, I'll prove it to you later on. I'll show you a little. Uh, I'll show you a little. I'll take a little picture of what I got. I have a tens unit attached to me i have a tens unit attached to me and uh, if you don't know what a tens unit is it's um there's like four squares that uh, are sticky on one side and you stick them to your body wherever uh, something ails you and then what you do is uh, you turn on this little machine and it shoots electricity through your body so uh, i was all wired up i, I was hopped up on the juice i was hopped up on the juice because i um i have a little bit of a back issue right now and one of the ways that I'm dealing with the back issue is uh, by electrocuting myself. So uh, uh, it's helpful, and it's keep me off, it's keep me off the hard stuff. So when we were starting out this morning, my uh, tens unit was beeping like crazy. Uh, there was a problem with the music, and uh, it just was all kaflooey. No, there was a problem. You looked at me and you said, "I'm trying to start," and you were cursing out uh, one of the computers. Uh, you were you were cursing out a computer. You remind me of the guy I saw at Walmart the other day. Yeah, it was sticky. This computer is sticky. So um, many, as I understand it, uh, many people uh, have problems with sticky computers. So uh, for a wide variety of reasons, uh, our computer was not sticky for the reason that um, many uh, divorced men in their late 40s computers may be sticky as they're sitting around late at night, you know, when they don't, on the weekends when they don't have the kids. So... uh, <laughs> Our computer, when she meant sticky, that actually the internet itself was having a difficult time coming through. We had some internet issues this morning on the show before the show on Facebook Live. We had a um, no, not yet. It kind of stopped working for a moment. Yeah. You had an issue because you wanted to go to the bathroom and you didn't want to cut across behind uh, uh, behind me while I was doing this incredibly popular program we put out called the Show Before the Show. Oh. God in heaven, sweet Jesus Marie. Look who's here. It's Rob the drunken intern. <laughs> Rob the drunken intern. My, uh, Rob, will you do me a favor? Uh, since you're here, might as well do something. Will you arrange microphones for everyone here so people can begin to talk uh, right after this segment? So we have a great show today. Uh, uh, like I said, Shirley was cussing out the computer. She reminded me of the guy at Walmart that we saw uh, last week. Last week, uh, things are getting crazy in America. Not, Not, you know, like... Not like, uh, um, you know, collapse of the Russian Empire crazy, but they were getting a little crazy. Uh, last week, Shirley and I were at uh, Walmart because we, uh, we're Walmart people. We live in a Walmart world. We, uh, we have embraced our Walmartism. I am Walmart-like. I am the Walmart. I am the new Walmart man. <laughs> there was the old Walmart man. I am the new I'm the 21st century Walmart man. My apologies to King Crimson and Robert Fripp. So, um... We were at Walmart, and there was a guy, uh, a white guy, and I can say that because I'm a white guy. White guys can make fun of white guys. And uh, he was at the self-checkout line, 
and he was cursing at the self-checkout machine. But he wasn't cursing at the machine. He was having a conversation with it about Spicks. He's going, I hate all these damn Spicks. I'm sick of all these Mexicans and this Spick stuff. And I'm hearing this behind me, and I whip around to see what the hell is going on. And I see this guy, and he's cursing out a self-checkout machine. Now, I don't know if the self, I don't think the self-checkout machine uh, had an ethnic origin. And then uh, I was going to say something like, hey, dude, keep it down. Something like that. But I'm at Walmart. So, um, something just occurred to me. What? Now, oh, maybe, maybe he pressed the wrong button and the uh, self-checkout machine was giving him instructions in Espanol, which, uh, um, and that he, um, he didn't have good enough education to uh, be able to switch it back to uh, Inglese. So uh, I started to say something to the guy, but then I'm at Walmart, you know, it's Wednesday afternoon. Do I really want to do this? It's not like he was like, you know, punching a little kid or something. And then I realized I actually felt sorry for the guy, not for his, uh, uh, not for his opinions there, but I thought this is what he's down to. Whatever went on in his life, whatever went on in this poor bastard's life, he is now down to uh, standing in a Walmart in Maricopa, Arizona on Casa Grande Highway. Would that be the proper pronunciation? Casa Grande. Because, you know, we all say Casa Grande. Well, hell yeah, buddy. I had myself a flat out there in that Castle Grand Highway. It's tough to change a tire out there, man. People just whip by it. They don't care. So uh, that he was down to not even having another human being to express his hate to. He could only converse with a machine. Kind of like talking to Rob the interns, like talking to a machine. So uh, we had sticky computers. We had people cussing out computers. We had uh, TENS units that were misfiring. Uh, we had a lot of crazy things to kick off the morning. And then I realized something horrible and why we got in such a panic right at 9 a.m. My expensive Movado watch has stopped working. It is high. This is, you know what this, how much do you think this watch costs, Rob? 25 bucks. 25 bucks. You're an asshole. <laughs> okay. Brian, bro, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me, let me bring microphones up here. Uh, there we go. Brian, how much do you think this watch costs? I think you found it on the side of the road. See, you know what? I don't like you anymore either. Uh, during a uh, uh, during a uh, period of time when things were going well for me, I just uh, concluded some deal in in the in the live arena, which is where I have toiled for most of my life, and uh, I was feeling pretty good about myself. And I decided to buy myself a gift, and I bought myself this watch. This watch retailed in two thousand seven for twelve hundred dollars. This is a twelve. Hundred, no uh, huh? Hand to God, left hand to God, left hand to God, left guy, left hand to the deity of your choice. Okay, that's what the guy in the street told you it was worth. No, I tell you where I bought it. That's a hurtful thing to say, um, but you know it justified knowing me. Uh, I bought it at a Ben Bridges at the Topanga Mall <laughs> in Woodland Hills, California. <laughs> I only laugh because I went to Canoga Park High School across yeah. the street from the Canoga, from the. You know exactly Park. what I'm talking about, and I was there because I used to live in Chatsworth. Uh, I had family. My brother lives in Woodland Hills, so Topanga Canyon. That that was our, that was our that was our hood. Do you know what, go ahead. Do you know what that mall was most famous for when I was growing up? It was where the Blues Brothers filmed their scene. Their mall scene with all the cars crashing. Ah. That was the weekend or the week before they opened the mall. They totally destroyed it for that movie. 
See, I did not know that. Yeah. So I don't know if, you know what? That's an interesting piece of uh, trivia, which I enjoy, which I think many people who listen to the show would enjoy. I don't know if that's what makes them all famous because we don't know about it. <laughs> uh, for a long time it was, you know. They used them for a lot of television shows. Uh, I'm just Brady saying. Bunch and stuff like sure. that. Sure. You know, yeah. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Marsha, Marsha. Well, you know, they've expanded that mall incredibly. I don't know if haven't you've been, been there. there. I haven't been there in 30 years. They've they've actually done one of those uh, uh, where they have like the outdoor, like where you walk along, which I think is stupid because I went there with my daughter the last time I was in town because she lives walking distance from that mall. Um, she works uh, sometime at the, uh, part-time at the Whole Foods at uh, Ventura and Canoga, and she lives right in that neighborhood, and uh, they've expanded that mall massively. Remember how it used to be two malls? Yeah. It was like the, the, it was a smaller mall where the, where the movies were, and then the larger mall where uh, Macy's and Sears. Sears is closed at the Topanga Mall. Shut down. Bolted shut. Well, Sears missed out on the whole internet marketing thing because before Amazon, it was Sears. If you wanted anything, yeah. they had the big catalog. Yeah. And you would have thought they would have caught onto that, but, you know. I don't think Sears will ever be able to replace Amazon in uh, in history and in its value because in the old days, the Sears catalog also doubled as toilet paper. Absolutely. <laughs> it replaced the corn cob as the, uh, um, as the equipment of choice in order for one to cleanse one's... Um, Posterior. I'm getting a. Uh, I'm getting a, a little thing from the um, from our producer Shirley uh, saying we should take a little break. Or introduce properly. Or introduce properly. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. I was going to do that after a break, but I. You know what? I was going to take a break because I thought we should take a break, then bring everybody in. Okay. And but now you're doing it because. You just okay, so I should go outside now? No, yeah, you should go outside, wait, knock at the door, go. And it'll be like the old Dean Martin show. <laughs> go, Who's at the door? Who could it be? <laughs> it's me. It's me, Dean, you drunk. All right, you know what? We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we'll officially kick off the show. This was the preamble. We had the show before the show on Facebook. Then we had the pre-show on ComedySchoolsRadio.com. And when we come back, we officially start this Thursday morning's broadcast on ComedySchoolsRadio.com. All right, and we are back. You're listening to ComedySchoolsRadio.com. Uh, my name is Tony Visick. Let me uh, let me lay out the players today, so you know what you're uh, you know what you can visualize. Uh, you're staring at your computer, uh, staring at your radio, because it's real easy to listen to this uh, show in your vehicle. That's how you say it, right? Vehicle. That's, I believe so. That is the proper pronunciation. Vehicle. Uh, and when you're in your vehicle, all you have to do is hook your uh, device to. Um, your little audio input, and you can listen to us just like you would listen to Pandora or uh, any other um, any other non-AM/FM uh, event. You'd be able to listen to us in your vehicle. You don't have to go. Damn, we got to get in the car. We can't listen to Tony. You can listen to it right here. So let me lay out who we got here in the studio today. If you're working from uh, my right to your left, from your if you're looking at your radio right now, from uh, from the far right to the far left, and that's all that's left in America right now. On the far right is our uh, producer who just happens to be my wife, Shirley Lovisic. Let's give her a hand. Woo! All right, dead center, right in front of me, right there, right in the bullseye seat, is a, a very funny man and a, a good friend of mine who um, wrote for a, a lot of great shows in Los Angeles, and we're going to be talking with him in depth about comedy and comedy writing uh, just a little bit later. Brian LaPan, ladies and gentlemen, let's put it together for Brian. 
Brian, take thank a bow. You. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. And uh, sitting to my left is uh, is our lost sheep, all right, the prodigal son who has returned from a maze of uh, East Coast maple leaf gazing and alcoholism, Rob Elderton. Rob, take a bow, Rob. <laughs> Actually, oh, yeah. you, you should say hi because it's radio. And I can't, hi. Can't see you. <laughs> Jesus. The waving doesn't uh, work. Rob. Yeah, waving high, doing that, doing you, you that. You uh, said take a bow, and I did. <laughs> yeah, you did. The, you the took a bow. The waving was just yeah. extra. I, you know what? It'd be great. You take a bow. I heard you. You would take a dive any chance you get. Uh, oh, oh, boom. Oh. Rob, I want to ask you a question. Go ahead. Uh, where you been the last month? Uh, I have been in Connecticut, New York, and Vermont. Doing what? Uh, watching baseball vacationing and being bored in Vermont. Did you miss any meals? No. Did you work? No. No. And yet the country's going to hell. A young man can bum around the East Coast watching baseball and eating and not working. Well, Rob is white. Yeah, he is. Yeah. I get yeah. away with it. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, as soon as you hit town, I was uh, perusing social media and I yeah. saw that you, Rob, participated in... Um, the uh, the contest that they have down the street there at the comedy club called Arizona's Funniest Comedian. I did. You did. And I'll tell you what I found interesting about this year's contest. I haven't gone to this year's contest, um, but I I recognize very few of the names. I didn't recognize, I didn't recognize one. Yeah. So, yeah. Rob, were you the funniest? I, I was not. <laughs> you were not the funniest. How much time did they give you? Five minutes. Five minutes. All right. And was, was the room full? Uh, no. No. <laughs> No. About half. Yeah, you know what they're kind of doing down there, and I'm not, you know, I'm not putting it down, but they they're trying to create their own kind of like universe. The the people that own that club came into town and wanted to then attach to the universe that was already here, which is justifiable, makes sense. But now what they're trying to do is create their own universe that will then eclipse uh, everything else that is here. So when I look at the list, it used to be when I looked at the list of people in that contest, uh, I'd go, oh, I know who most of these people are. There'd be some people you don't know, and it's it's arrogant to think I should know every I sh- I know everybody here, okay? That's stupid. But then I would know the majority of them, and there'd be other names that I didn't know. I would get to know. Now I recognize hardly any of the names. Although I did see in the semifinalists, and uh, uh, we should shout out congrats to uh, our good friend, comedian and author Billy O'Connor, who wrote a, a very cool book, which I actually read called Confessions of a Bronx Bookie, and Steve Kraus, Steve Sharpbrust Kraus. Who's one of the funniest? He, he was on my show. He was fantastic. He's fantastic. He recently, if you don't know Steve, Steve um, has uh, um, a physical challenge. I don't know the exact terminology for it, but he is uh, he is in a wheelchair and um, uh, his arms are fairly short, etc. He hasn't let that stop him from pursuing comedy, and he also didn't let it stop him from. Remember the steps in Rocky, where in the beginning in Rocky he runs up and he's all winded, but at the end he's up. The, he actually climbed those steps. Now, he can't walk, but he worked out enough so that he was able to wiggle, if you will, himself all the way up to the top of those steps. Wow. Quite a feat. And he's a funny, funny guy. And he won. Uh, he's going on to the semifinals. Yes. My prediction for this particular contest is that this year Steve takes it all. Uh, I think it was. Uh, I think that's a very good guess. Yeah. There's also another guy on my show who was very, very good. And who was that? I'm going to have to look up his name. Yeah, see, that's how good he was. That's yeah, how yeah, good. He's my favorite. That he, guy, I don't remember his name. I never will forget, oh, what's his name? He must have gone right before. Yeah, yeah, yeah right like, before you know, that. He went at, like, the very end of the show when everyone's all comedy out. Yeah. 
Yeah, then we. <laughs> you kind. Of, you know exactly in, what I'm saying. At some level, you're explaining the city. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Shirley, who do we have coming in from uh, the House of Comedy tomorrow? Do you? Andy Woodhull. Andy Woodhull. So uh, tomorrow from uh, Rick Bronson's House of Comedy, uh, we have the very funny Andy Woodhull. Double check if you can, but you get a chance. I think way back when we first started, we had Andy in before, but I could be wrong. Uh, we always enjoy having the um, comics from uh, Rick Bronson's House of Comedy in. Rick is a really cool guy. It's a fantastic club. We will be interviewing Andy tomorrow, along with uh, uh, manager Mandy, who comes in, and we're kind of put. We actually are creating a song right now based on something that uh, she and I and Monroe Martin did last week where we were talking about, um, and Brian, I don't know what your opinions are on this. We were talking about the number of uh, um, allergies that seem to be popping up in young children today. <laughs> and we were talking about uh, uh, food, and we were talking about the, uh, the food supply, and, um, the, and all the food restrictions that people do with their... And she kind of went a little nuts about it. She's a new mother. She has a gorgeous young son. And she goes, look, you want your kids not to be allergic? Then eat everything while you're pregnant. And I told her that should be the title of her book, Eat It While You're Pregnant. <laughs> and then Monroe and I started doing a little rap song to it. Eat it while you're pregnant. Eat it while you're pregnant. And then she gave a little speech about what you should do. And Shirley's been working on producing that. Next week, we will debut the first official song from ComedySchoolsRadio.com entitled Eat It While You're Pregnant. Very exciting news. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, a big, it's a big step for you, Toad. I know that. You know, it's, like, it's huge. And, and, and brings Shirley into the world of record producing. That's record producing. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, on our list. And, and we I was here. You were here. The, the day you announced it. The day we announced it. Fantastic. Yeah, on our list, uh, it, probably this week, but I, was, uh, uh, I called you to come on down. Uh, a man named Shelly Yakis, who is a legendary sound engineer, who has just built a new recording studio in... Uh, Sunset Boulevard is going to um, is going to uh, be on the show, be a guest of the show. He has produced everyone from Don Henley and Edgar Winter uh, to Nine Inch Nails to uh, he's worked with Dre, he's worked with John Lennon, and whenever I get together with him, we have a lot of great conversations about creativity. He comes from a music side. He's one of those guys that sit at one of those giant boards. After the guys come in high, going, "Hey, motherfucker, you're gonna party all night." Hey, and then they go off to some hotel someplace. <laughs> yeah. He's the guy who sits in a windowless room for like five days fooling with buttons. Well, you're going to have to switch seats with him, right? Because he's got to sit here at the control. Yeah, these good. guys can't sit without their fingers moving up and down. I, 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 wonder, I wonder if they make good lovers that way. You know, I wonder if their wives like, because their fingers are always moving, nice and gentle. There's no big, fast movements. They might, but they usually don't leave that room. Well, the wife can join them there. Yeah. And they know, like, those rooms have had a lot of sex, let's be honest. Yeah, 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 yeah. Talking about sticky rooms. There was a, uh, a particular artist that he, um, and uh, you see, I, I won't reveal who the artist is because uh, then I'd be betraying a confidence with uh, Shelly. But a particular artist, when he was working with him at Sunset Studios back uh, in the, um, I think in the mid-70s, late-70s, I forget if it was 70s or 80s, big artist who had left a major group and now had gone solo, and the solo album that he did was massive as well. Who said that they would have a bet, him and uh, another guy that he was uh, another musician, as to who could sleep with the most women that day, and all they would do is go stand out in front of Sunset Studios and go, "Hi, I'm so and so, formerly of," <laughs> and, and, and would you like to? And the number of yeses, Shelley goes, he goes, yeah, yeah, it was astounding. Now I won't reveal who the artist is on air. 
because, like I said, it'd be particularly the confidence of Shelly. Shelly is mentioned on um, John Lennon's Imagine album because wow. he was the engineer on John Lennon's Imagine album, and they would be in there for days recording, and Shelly was a young guy, and he would pass out at the console. And if you if you ever get a hold of a John Lennon Imagine album, look at the inner sleeve where the credits are, you see Shelly Sleep Yakis. <laughs> Because John Lennon went, hey, he fell asleep again. That should be his name, Sleep. So, uh, all right, we covered all that. I want to I want to talk to our guest. Uh, I have been talking to our guest. I want to talk to our guest about stuff our guest knows about. Ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, Brian LaPan in. Brian, good morning. Officially good morning. Hey, Tony, it's good to be here. Thank you. Even though it's very early. You know how early it is? This morning I got up. Last time I went over to visit Tony at his house, he said, ah, bring your bathing suit and your towel and stuff like that. Maybe we'll go in the pool. Well, I didn't do it that day. Today, no. this morning, I got up, I grabbed my towel and my bathing suit, and I brought it with me. Because well, I we're not at the house. I know, I know, but that's that's how early it is for me. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> did you uh, did you hit a lot of traffic coming in? I hit a bit of traffic, but it's, you know, this is Phoenix traffic. It's not L.A. traffic. You know, I explained it to people. You know, uh, Shirley and I live in the entertainment capital of Arizona, Maricopa, Arizona. And you know what? People laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll prove that it's the entertainment capital. I'm going to prove it to you right now. Right, go for it, baby. What did I do last Friday? Let me tell you what I did last Friday. Do you have any idea what I did last Friday? I'm scared. Uh, well, <laughs> there was that. But, uh, well, you know, that's Here's the thing is you, you have to look it up on your phone. I no, mean, your mind, no. you can't remember what you did last Friday? I know. You know what? I can't, as a matter of fact. Uh, um, he, we I'm, went go to... The Akchin Casino, not to be confused with the Akchin Pavilion, which is 50, 60 miles away. Yeah. And I've done that. And saw The Wait. Right there, I see your eyes lighting up. I see your <laughs> eyes lighting up. Who is The Wait, you may ask? Well, no, you told me. This yeah. Is, this is band cover band. The band it, cover band. It, see, how bad is that? The legendary, the legendary, almost mythically beautiful musical organization known as The Band. Okay, uh, this group of individuals are people who have either either played with the band, or played with Levon Helm, or played with Bob Dylan. So, and what they do now is all music that was recorded by the band. So, it wasn't just like a regular cover band. It wasn't like going out and seeing a Foghat cover band made up of guys from Mesa. Yeah, I, but, I, I, but know, sometimes those are guys are good. Those guys are pretty good. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, a lot of cover band. These guys actually were in the group at one time, or work with members of the group. So they, I, I don't know. You see, here's the thing: is I know you go to like to the the dead after the dead shows, the dead barely dead shows, or whatever they're called, Dead and Company, the Dead and Company with John Mayer. Okay, okay. Well, John Mayer is a current artist, right? But it's like I'm not. I'm old enough where I should be into this stuff. Yeah. But it's like I'm kind of tired of listening to the oldest people possible try to sing the songs that they used to sing. I agree. That's not what. It's not exactly what Dead and Company <laughs> does. Because what it is, it's while while staying with. Staying with the spirit of the original music, and when Garcia was with them, they're kind of doing their own thing as well. You know, are so, they writing new tunes? Uh, they're, 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 they've announced they're going to put out a new album. Okay. Now, yeah, the the the, uh, the Grateful Dead. I think um, their uh, current bass player in Dead and Company was with uh, the Allman Brothers for twenty years, and he said when he joined, he freaked out because he goes, "I got to learn four hundred songs." Because their their songbook, the Grateful Dead songbook, is four hundred about four hundred songs. Yeah. But he goes, then I realized I only had to learn like one hundred twenty five because that's all we were playing on this tour. It's all they could remember. They're so so I do I do go see the Dead Company. I have tickets to see uh, this young man whose portrait is directly behind me in October. Bob, that be, have you seen him before? Yeah, I've seen I've seen him maybe about twenty times. Right. And yeah. how many times those were really really good? 
you know, See, that's just nostalgia, man. I've seen Bob Dylan five times. One time I could understand kind of what he said. The other times it's like the audience sang it better than he did. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's an interesting thing. Uh, I saw him at the Greek Theater maybe 15 years ago when uh, I forget who his ba- I, It might be the, ba- the band that he tours with now with um, uh, that great uh, guitarist that he has. But um, G. Smith. No, no, not G.E. Smith. It's a, a kid who was going to be big on his own, who was really hot. Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols oh, told sure. me about this guy in the 80s. Said, if you can make it down to the whiskey tonight, you should check this kid out. I didn't go. But instead of becoming, you know, the next uh, um, whatever, you know, uh, Eric Clapton. Because the, the, the era of the guitar god is kind of over. And this guy found It'll his... It'll come back, man. It'll come back. This guy found his niche as lead guitarist with Dylan. But it was also that tour where Dylan then, in the middle of the tour... In the middle of the uh, show, came out and sat on a stool around the early '90s. Okay, around okay. the time that uh, those those uh, unplugged shows started happening. Yeah, and he sat down. Talking. He sat down with an acoustic guitar and played about ten songs, just him, and it was absolutely stunning. Yeah. Now, what you're talking about, what Brian's talking about, is on occasion nowadays, <laughs> if you go to see uh, Mr. Zimmerman's concerts, you will sit there. And uh, it's kind of like seeing a dead show around 83 when Jerry was totally zonked out on heroin and going, are they playing a song? Are they tuning up? What are they doing? But here's the thing. Shirley has never seen Bob Dylan. Okay. Okay. And, and, and she's seen a lot of the great artists of our era, of uh, this generation or any other. The great artists of this generation or any other here today. New as they were when they began. Oh, sorry. Did we Did go you? to Germany all of a sudden? Is that yeah, I was doing was? some. I was doing, I was they trying were doing cabaret, I was cabarets st- coming to town. Are to... you applying for the job? Mm, the, the band is beautiful. The girl. The good. Rob, is he something? doesn't understand anything we're talking about, does he? Not Rob, a damn the, thing. Now, if you mention sandwiches or masturbation, his eyes light up. Otherwise okay. than that. Or masturbating a sandwich. All right. I get, Rob will be back in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to see... Because Shirley's never seen Bob Dylan, so it's like, sure, some of these acts are what I call Washington Monument acts. Yes. You know, like if you go to Washington, D.C., you go, well, let's go look at the monument. And it's just a big hunk of concrete. Hey, when I went to Memphis, I had to go to Graceland, right? You have to go to Graceland. It's like in the laws. When you pull into Memphis, there's, you know, Correct. There's signs that you got to go to Graceland. I, you know, when I was in Memphis, and I was walking through Memphis, uh... (laughs) <laughs> when I was in, that's Memphis. some good comedy there, Tommy. <laughs> Tony. Uh, when I was in Memphis, I uh, I had I had limited funds at the time because I was I was turned as a comic and I was working for this really cheap uh, this really cheap organization and I was saving my money uh, and I had an off day and I was in Memphis and I had a choice between Graceland and the Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Motel Hotel Holiday Inn. So uh, uh, I went and looked at Graceland right. through the gates, and then I paid. I didn't pay to go the. Fu- I couldn't even afford the full tour of the Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Museum, but it was. I found that incredibly fascinating. They have the original vehicles that were there that day parked. Pretty cool cars too. Yeah, they were pretty good. Like you know, like Lincolns and Cadillacs, drop tops. You know, and and the and that section of that motel has been preserved exactly the way it was when uh, uh, Dr. King was assassinated. And there's a museum. And it was five bucks to go into the front part and then more to go into the back. And I only had five bucks. But that was my Memphis experience. That's pretty morbid. It is. It <laughs> is. Very morbid. Oh, you want to... You know, and and Graceland was kind of cool in its own morbidity, too, because I go into his bedroom with all the, you know... Yeah. All the leopard skin stuff. And, you know, and you know we were the only people there that day for some reason. Like, you know, the security guard goes, look, just try not to hurt anything. And we jumped over the... 
over the barriers and laid in his cat on his bed and stuff. Were like you that. able to use the bathroom where he died? No. He died in on the to- in the toilet. That's what I read. You know what his problem was, don't you? <laughs> Which one? Well, many, but yeah, you, you know what eventually killed him was he was an opiate user, and opiates cause uh, uh, constipation. Oh, there you go. And so uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people use opiates, heroin, morphine, Percocet, Dilaudid, Oxycontin. If I could, they have a problem uh, uh, with elimination. Oh, this is this is um, this is the funny part of the show. Let's go. <laughs> it is to me. The more you know. <laughs> I think that the message of Elvis, if there's if there's if there's a lesson to be learned, now there's a me- there's a lesson. You know, I know Elvis. it was the opiates and not the winking. What do you mean the winking? The winking. The winking. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm using a little bit. Oh, I thought you said slang. winking. I go, no. Okay. Oh, you mean with the A? Yeah. You mean taking his penis in his hand and moving his hand back and forth <laughs> in a know. violent fashion, Rob? Can you? Okay. So. Uh, <laughs> So, so Rob, just yes, back, I'm aware of what that is. Just back down a little bit, okay? We don't want you to die there. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it wasn't that. He had Linda Thompson in the next room, brother. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you're right. Uh, no, Excuse it, me, sorry, Shirley, but you know what I mean. He, um, he, he. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's bad? Shirley's behind me. I can't see if I'm pissing her off or not. Yeah. Just tell me when a knife comes, all right? <laughs> She just oh, happy. She, she's just not happy. Just her and I for two hours. <laughs> he, no, it was that he, he had a heart attack from the strain. Okay, that's yeah, how he died. And so the lesson of Elvis is: you can have everything this world can give you: money, fame, women, influence, all this kind of stuff, and still die by yourself on the toilet. Absolutely, man. That's you know it's a beautiful the world that way. Yeah, it's it's like a it's like a uh, after school special. That's right. Yeah, a bathroom I mean, I for Jerry. That. A bathroom for Jerry. The story of a sad little junior high boy who took too many opiates and then died pooping. There you, go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, speaking of after school specials, you never wrote an after school special. God no, we wrote episodes about after school specials. You did. Uh, <laughs> and you worked on a lot of great shows, and one of my favorite was Unhappily Ever After. That was when you, out of all those shows, that was one of your favorites. Well, fantastic. Well, that's the first time I became aware of you, like where I would read you know, credits and stuff. And, and uh, when uh, when I was first going to meet you, a, a guy named Jay Carpenter told me about you. And uh, Jay said, we got a guy here who uh, was, uh, uh, he said, Tony, you should meet this guy. The guy was a, uh, uh, he was a writer in Hollywood. He wrote for uh, Unhappily Ever After. So that's when I first became aware of you. So it's funny because when, when most people hear Unhappily Ever After, they never heard of the show. Especially people of our age. Yeah. And I'll say our age as if I was, like, close to your age. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it was a great show. I thought it was – correct me, the, the people who created Married with Children, Ron Levitt. Ron Levitt who created Married with Children. And never and, and always dressed like a complete bum, even as a multimillionaire. Oh, absolutely. He, he wouldn't comb his hair. He was also the nicest guy possibly I ever worked with in that kind of role. Yeah, yeah. Just super laid yeah. back had a good time didn't like fighting with anybody yeah just like writing the jokes and drinking coca-cola out of those little bottles and Uh, smoking like a like a chimney even pat when they passed the laws that said you could no longer smoke at work the deal was if you worked in his writer's room he was going to smoke and we had like two jet engine air cleaners behind him so we'd always have to yell out our jokes in the writer's room so he was like the sharon stone of executive producers what are you going to do arrest me for smoking (laughs) no he was never that serious (laughs) He's like, like, you don't mind, do you? My only, the only time I met him was a, a cafeteria, a, like a, a little sandwich joint near the studios. And I was over there 
with someone and they go, hey, Ron, and it was him. And he was wearing like really wrinkled shorts and flip-flops and he had long hair and it was all kind of mad. And he goes, hey, how you doing? And uh, he goes, that, that was his key though. See, that's the how you doing thing. That was his key that meant, I don't know your name. Uh-huh. So like whenever you were with him, if you went to, if you're with, meeting somebody that you knew and you go, hey, how you doing? That was like, hey, Ron. Yeah. And, and then you would say, oh, hey, Tommy, how you doing? Then that way he could pick up on the name. Yeah. The how you doing was when he um, Yeah. Well, Ron was a super good guy, super nice, took care of everybody who worked for him. What he what he said to the guy was he goes he goes how you doing he goes I'm doing good he goes oh you're doing better he goes he goes you know I'm I'm getting by and uh, the guy goes oh you're doing better getting by he goes okay I'm millionaire and by yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just it always stuck with me now you wrote on that show here's what I'm interested uh, and I think what our listeners we've we've had a lot of really great writers on the show and that's why we're glad that you're here. Um, how did how does one you became a sitcom writer which is that's like that's like one of the holy grails you became a television writer it's one of the holy grails as far as a job goes in the entertainment industry to be able to write on one of those shows yeah the holy grail is to be al pacino doing a comedy or something but that's one of the that's one of the top jobs how does one go from going to los angeles oh you grew up in los angeles right but you can grow up in Canoga Park, and it's really no different than growing up in Iowa. I didn't grow up in the business. Yeah, you did not grow up in the business. Okay. So how does one even get from you're a kid in the Valley to writing on television? Well, the my, my journey was a whole different than most. Most is like you go to Harvard, and then you meet someone that you know, and then they just carry you over. Um, but for me, it was literally I loved comedy. I grew up watching Johnny Carson and All in the Family and MASH and all the great shows. And um, just... I didn't start till I was 30. Buddy, mine, I, I mean, most people were out of the business by the time they were 30. We didn't even try to get in until we were 30. So what were you doing up to that point in time? Uh, what wasn't I doing? Professional photographer, working in camera stores, managing rock bands, uh, you name it. Just okay. all kinds of stuff. So just uh, what a lot of people did, I didn't start and stand up till I was 29, so... I, 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 I get what you're saying. And, and had a wide variety of jobs. As you're going from job, you were going from job to job going, well, maybe this is my niche. This is my niche. And after a short period of time going, this is not my niche. Yeah. I'm going to do something else. Well, the truth is, I've always been creative. I started writing like in junior high school. I was like the editor of the junior high school paper. Yeah. So writing was always part of what I was doing, and I did it really well, and I was a journalism major in college. But after that, like, you go out and you live life. This is the thing that, you know, I think is a challenge for Rob here. It's for young yeah. comics. Like, you know, it's like they haven't lived a lot to make fun of yet. Yeah. You know, it's like you, you haven't suffered. I mean, Rob, you know, nice-looking guy. He hasn't, you know, if you were really ugly and about this tall, like your friend who has the disability, you have more comedy there to build on, more heart and Because you live through pain, yeah. Yeah. And so as 30-year-olds, when we got in the business, like, we'd already had our own business. We had, we were married. We were starting to have kids. So we could relate to the things we were writing, whereas a lot of the staffs can't. So you had a partner starting out. So you, you and another guy, did you guys get together and go, hey, man, let's write for television? Yeah. Okay. And you knew this day. guy. Yeah. I was working in a video shop, and he was selling shit to the video shop, and we became friends, and we said, well, we both like, how hard can this be? We're watching TV. How hard can it be, right? Yeah. We're watching, like, perfect, we both like Perfect Strangers back in the day. You know, Don't Larry and Balthus. You know, <laughs> you know it's funny because on the way in, there was something where uh, Shirley and I were talking, and I looked at her and I went, "Don't be ridiculous." I go, "Remember that guy? Remember that guy?" <laughs> and I went, "That's ludicrous." Yeah. Thinking of guys who just with one word, like what Mike Tyson did with ludicrous. Don't be ludicrous. <laughs> and the guy on Perfect Strangers going, "Don't be ridiculous." <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you liked that show? So we liked that show. So we said, "Oh, let's try writing one." 
And so we, we sat down and we like we got together. We literally watched it like every week together because there was no VCRs at that time. Yeah. Really. So we watched the shows and we'd actually write down notes on like how it breaks down and where the story goes and how many characters there you were. You didn't know anything about A story, B story. No, nobody, nobody teaches you that stuff. Yeah. It should be taught. Yeah. We'll talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> but no. So we just so we sat down and we wrote it and we wrote the script, which we thought was really funny. And then we went to Hollywood. You can buy like movie and TV scripts and we bought one. And we got one, and like ours was like 125 pages, and theirs was 40. Yeah. We go, oh, damn. <laughs> we yeah. got to do something. Yeah, there. we got to make it shorter. <laughs> yeah. We got to make it shorter. Which, you know, when you got 120 pages and you're starting out, you're going like, but this is all gold. So that's that, that's a fun piece of information you're giving us right now. You sat down to write a sitcom script, and you wrote a 120-page sitcom script. Yeah. Not knowing that one of the things that you learn from someone like you is that a, a one page usually equates about a minute. Well, in a in a sitcom in a three camera sitcom script, which are uh -huh. which are double spaced versus um, one camera sitcom scripts, which are more like movie scripts. Okay. So it's almost two to the page. Okay. Two to All the right. minute. Two to the minute in a in a three camera sitcom script. Okay. At least back in the day. All right. So so you guys so you uh, you know it's we wrote like three and a half episodes. <laughs> there's a, there's a story. It's a it's a I don't know if it's apocryphal, but it's a legendary story. Uh, where a writer came in and handed a, a, a big producer back in the golden golden age said here's my movie and he held it in his hand just with his fingers and went too long because <laughs> he could tell by the weight of the pages yeah. he goes I won't read it till you cut it by 20 minutes so uh, uh, you had and I've had people do that I've had people come in and go hey you're in show business and they go kinda and they go well, you read my movie script and they hand me like 30 pages and they go this is my movie I go this ain't a movie <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I've had people hand me a hundred pages and go, "This is yeah. my sitcom." So you had a hundred twenty-five page sitcom, right? And then you go, "Okay, All right, we got some explaining to do." Right. So, <laughs> so we started, you know, just cutting it down and cutting it down, and um, and then we start. Well, we, but we knew to try, you know, keep going. We worked on that one. We got happy with it. We got it cut down. Then we well, let's write another one because we got to get good at it. You know, you got to yeah. get practice. Most people they write one, they think, "Oh, I'm great. I'm going to go get a job." Yeah. You know, it's like you know, fit, you know, change your first tire. Oh, I'm going to be a mechanic. Yeah. You know, it's like so we wrote. We then the next one we wrote was a night court. Okay. And you're just writing these to learn how to write. Just writing them for ourselves. Okay. We didn't even really, you know, we didn't know if we were ever going to get. Did a you job get your neighbors there. together and do it like the play in the garage or no, anything? No, that no. Had, that but you fun. see, when, when you watch a show a lot, you can hear their voices in your head. Yeah, you know, you know the characters. Like if you're writing, you know, Archie Bunker, you don't have to have someone read those lines to you. No, because you hear it. You hear it in your. You head. know the character. Yeah. So yeah. so then we wrote a Night Court, and then we um, started. There's all these different organizations and classes and like NBC Writers Workshop and Warner Brothers Writers Workshop and uh -huh. all those things. So we just started sending them out. And then you got a call? And then we got a call from the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop. Um, I remember I was working on a miniseries as a assistant to the producer, assistant to the director, and all these kind of, you know, script editors. So you're now shifted into a job more into the business instead of being a photographer. Yeah, but you know what? It's not really. When you're working in an office of an executive producer yeah. who's making melodramatic miniseries, Judith Grant's yeah. novels, there's no crossover between that business and the sitcom business. There's really, at back then, there was no crossover between the one-hour television business and the sitcom business. They were entirely different worlds. Nobody crossed over those lines. Would you say, uh, so let me ask you this. You know, I noticed that when I was younger and I would watch television, what's her name, Suzanne DePass? You know Suzanne DePass, yeah. Yeah, she seemed to be one of the first ones to cross over from, because she was an executive producer on Lonesome Dove. 
and then later on doing sitcoms and and, uh, and one hour dramas. So has that changed somewhat now? I don't know that she was ever a creative executive producer. Okay. See, okay. there's a lot of people have a lot of titles. Like when Jeff was here, I was listening to your interview with Jeff. Yeah. It's like the titles don't mean that much if yeah. you don't know what they do. Yeah. When you see the titles come up on a show. Some people, you know, the stars get titles as executive producers, stuff like that, just because they're the stars. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they're having anything to do with the script. Some do, some don't. Yeah. But so it's the same way with executive producers. Yeah. Well, uh, Jeff was explained one time. He goes, I, "I'm in the only business where co means less than." Yeah. <laughs> I said, exactly. "So you're?" I said, "You're a co-executive producer of the show." He goes, "Yeah." I go, "So he goes, no." He goes, "I'm a writer." That's right. Yeah. I, anyway, someone explained one time. He says, "You see all those, all the things that say uh, co-executive producer, uh, producer." He goes, "Those are all different titles for writers." <laughs> As I understand it, though, that that has a different that makes an appreciable difference in compensation. Not necessarily. Sometimes they will give you a raise without giving you the net, the name. And sometimes instead of the raise, hey, I'll make you from a co-producer to a producer this year. A producer? Yeah, a producer. Me? And then here's the other weird thing. When I first was in the business, like there's a big difference between being a producer and having it produced by. Yeah. Entirely different. Produced by person is the guy who makes everything happen, who hires all the people and who you know, pays all the bills and, you yeah. know, and gives you a hard time for writing new sets. What I what I just say I, I worked on uh, uh, some pre-production on films before, and what I discovered was an was that uh, in order to be a producer in a film, all you had to do was go. I'm a, usually that meant I put some money in. That's I had nothing it. to do with it, and that it was the, it was either the UPM or the line manager, who a uh, uh, line producer yeah. that actually made the thing work. And, this, and the associate producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These those were the guys that were making sure that the. The cameras had film, and the set was there, and the actors showed up. All right, so you're writing. You get a call from Warner Brothers. You submitted this. Now, here's here's what I want to ask you, though, because, you know, all of all stories of success seem like foregone conclusions in the telling. <laughs> they do. You hear a guy say, well, I moved to Hollywood, and then I went on a couple of auditions. I took some classes. Yeah. Then I got this agent, and now I'm on this show. And it sounds so easy. But you go out there. It's and anything but. It's it really anything is. but. So, because there was probably thousands of scripts being uh, uh, sent to well, here's these the people. Thing is, you got to remember in LA, there's a there's a big market, there's a big business of we're going to help you sell your script. Sure. So pay us five hundred dollars to come to this class. Yeah. You know there was NBC Writers Workshop, which cost four hundred dollars to be a part of uh -huh. once, once they accepted you. So when I was working on this miniseries, I get the call at work um, that we've been accepted to this Warner Brothers Writers Workshop, and I'm going, well, how much does it cost? And Una on the phone from Warner Brothers says. It's free. It's like, all right, how much will it cost once we agree to take the class? <laughs> and she goes, no, no, it's absolutely free. And I'm going like, okay, seriously. Uh -huh. I mean, what's the catch? She goes, there is no catch. So you have to come in for an interview. And so, and I go, an interview? She goes, well, yeah, because we want to make sure you guys are the ones who write the script and we can tell if we talk to you. Uh -huh. So I call my partner and I go, hey, you know, we got in the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop. He goes, how much is it going to cost? I said, I don't think it costs anything. But he thought I was lying. Uh -huh. So he brought he went to the bank and got some money, and you know, yeah. we went just in but case. I'm taking a little, take a little walking around money right. just in case. Yeah. So we go there, and um, we did. They they had over I think a thousand submissions or something like that, and they okay. picked ten. All right. Or I'm sorry, twenty. Okay. And so we got in this, and it was a great little system where they had it was like a six week or I think it was about six or eight week session, and they had different executive producers from different shows walk you through each step of the process. So you would not only get to learn there, but you get to meet people who are actually doing this for a living. Okay. Which is where we met, um, you know, the people that gave us our first opportunity. Okay. All right. So, so 
here's what I'm hearing. You you had to, you you uh, you made the decision to do this, okay, out of a labor of love because you thought it might be fun to do, or maybe you could get a job doing it without knowing anything about the business. Right. First sitcom script, 120 pages. Realized once you saw one that it had to be shorter. Shortened it, okay. Yeah. Then submit it, but it still had to be good enough that when they did this. Well, here, here's, here's what I'm trying to dispel the myth that so many people so many people have that when you get a business they, they go well you know you gotta know somebody and, you know I could do that and they don't realize how hard you have to work to get something on television that it still has to be good right well here's the thing is if you know somebody it doesn't have to be good okay, okay? the truth is um, like Jeff talked about Roseanne Roseanne brought a lot of stand-up comics who'd never written in their life but yes. because she knew them they they were given an opportunity. Yeah. So knowing somebody is huge. That's if you know somebody, that could be eighty percent of it. Okay. To get your first stop. But if you don't know somebody, then you got to be like cream of the crop. I mean, really. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, and then the other the other problem is as you're making your way through it, is you're writing your scripts for someone to read who are not the actual executive producers or not the writers. They got to get past the assistant. The you know script readers, yeah. the secretaries, the whatever you want to call them, you know the producers who don't write, to get to the writers, and often, you know the tone is different, and what yeah. they expect is different. Uh-huh. It's like you know I could read a script and say, well, you know what, you know there's like three extra characters in the script for a show that we don't have extra, like Friends. You can't write an episode of Friends back in the day that had three extra characters in it because yeah. there were four people and maybe one. Yeah, you know, so uh-huh. like so you would just throw that out before you even read it. Yeah, because it's not producible. Gotcha. So gotcha. you have to learn. You know, you got first of all, you got to know how to how the structure of the show is, how to write so it can be produced, and then make it funny, and not change the characters. Okay. It's a real. It's more of a. I mean, sitcom writing is a craft first. Yeah. With 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 humor. Gotcha. Well, you know what? We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we can talk about then your first job moving forward in the industry, and uh, uh, the difference between being a sitcom writer and being a stand-up comic. And uh, um, uh, some of the conversations I've had with uh, other writers uh, in, in that regard. Okay, so we got a lot more cool stuff to uh, talk with you about, and uh, we also got to talk about the fact that you work with uh, one of my all-time favorite actors, Big Bad Bob Mitchum. So uh, that was more of a Sean Connery. Bob, that wasn't even close. It wasn't even close. It was nowhere near. It was nowhere near. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, more in store. And you know what, everybody, so far today, no politics. So I think a lot of my friends are happy. You're listening to Tony Vizic on ComedySchoolsRadio.com. This is really not fair that we're back right now. Because I wasn't finished eating my protein bar, so but I got. Anyway, I'm interested. Rob said he's got music for when we come back, so I'm kind of curious. No, like, no, no. When when we go back out. When we go back out, we're gonna yeah. have Rob's well, music. see what was going on is we have two different um, ways of playing music. And one, you and I won't hear it, right. and one, you and I will. And we've now switched over to the one where you and I will, because I I become very uncomfortable when I don't hear the music. Okay. Okay. I can't hear the music. <laughs> That's from some movie. Don't you get it? I can't hear the music. Uh, what that, movie was that? It, was, well, it sounds like a Twilight Zone. No, it wasn't a Twilight Zone. It was, And it wasn't a Twilight. Well, it was also it was part of that, what was that, Michael Keaton or Tom Hanks movie where he played stand-up with Shirley, with um, Sally Field. Flying Nun, where yeah. there was that moment where he couldn't hear the laughs. 
was like that Thank was based on that other scene. Oh, you know, you know, that was based on uh, that, that was um, um, Freddie Prinz right. told uh, Jack Albertson one time. He goes, "I can't hear." That was, it was such an interesting story with Freddie Prinz. Uh, I had moved to Los Angeles in the late '70s, right around the time of the Comedy Store strike. I'd gone to the Comedy Store a few times. Um, uh, I went a different way for a while. I went and studied method acting. But uh, Freddie Prinze was one of those phenomenas. There are people running around this town right now that are ten times funnier as a stand-up than Freddie Prinze ever was. But at the time, if you had, not everybody, but if you had five or ten minutes, you were at the Comedy Store when it was hot in the 70s. Punchline. Uh, yeah, Punchline was a movie with Tom Hanks. There was a TV movie, though, with Freddie Prinze, and I, I know people who knew him, that you had five or ten minutes and you were getting auditions. You know, guys were going from, you know, Leno talks about how he slept in his car. Other people go, Jay, slept in your car because you were too drunk to drive that night. <laughs> yeah, no, I slept in my car. <laughs> I'm honest, I did. Um, so uh, he became famous too fast, too soon. And then when he was being sent to Vegas to do shows, he went to Jack Albertson, was an old vaudevillain, and he goes, I don't even have any jokes. Right. I just go on stage and, and say a couple of stupid things. And Albertson gave him some jokes, but then he was so high and stuff. And in that TV movie, you hear him going, I can't hear him laughing. And it would be like thousands of people laughing. And I've known other comics that have gone through that. But you, as a sitcom writer, really never got to hear him laugh. I mean, I guess you did with, oh, actually, the, with you know, the audience. Well, actually, some of the biggest laughs were like on Monday and Cold Reading Days. Yeah. And nobody knew what was coming. Yeah. And those were, those, those were most of the time, except for when you had a real dog of a script. Uh-huh. They were just really fun because it was just pure, unadulterated. Nobody's heard this stuff out loud before. Yeah. And the actors, most of them, uh, quite honestly, don't take the time to read them over the weekend when they get them. Uh-huh. And so they come in, they just sit and read it, and like you hear stuff, and you hear the actors surprised at how funny they are. Yeah. You know, how funny their delivery is. And that was, that was uh, to me, as good as like a Friday night audience. What was the first show that you got a job on? First show that I got a job on? Um, uh, first, first show I worked on regularly was Family for Joe. Family for Joe. With your friend, Robert my Mitchum. Fr- Robert Mitchum. Yeah. Not, I would have liked to have been friends with Robert Mitchum, but <laughs> a storied individual. Yes. Well, um, well, the weird, the weird thing about that show was um, he had done a TV movie for NBC called The Family for Joe, mm-hmm. an hour and a half, just really like after school special type of show about a kid who's fam, about a bunch of kids. Now, it's that, much later in life for... for uh, oh, this for is the end of his career. Yeah. So... Um, so a bunch of kids, their parents went away on a trip to Europe, uh-huh. the plane crashed, they died, they have no other relatives, they're going to s- separate the kids and send them off to different relatives around the country. And they figured if they, they found this homeless guy, Robert Mitchum, so if we can say you're our grandpa, then we can all live together in our big mansion with all the money. Uh-huh. So they sell the grand- the Robert Mitchum on the day, you can be a rich old guy, but yeah. you've got to be our grandpa. So that was the movie. Which um, somewhere deep in the contract, which his manager never told him, was what is if um, NBC wanted to pick it up as a series, you are guaranteed. So he did not realize once he did this TV movie that if they wanted to, they could make a series and he had to do it. He had no idea and he was not happy. He was not Because he's not a sitcom guy, Robert Mitchum. This is Night of the Hunter. <laughs> this is Cape Fear. Uh, this is the guy that likes to drink and smoke. A lot. This yeah. is this is a guy who walked away from a chain gang. Yes. I mean, this guy is one of the last great legends of what uh, you know. When you hear about these these Hollywood stars from the '30s, the guys who were cowboys and running from the law, and they end up in Hollywood, and they go, "Can you hold the camera?" Yeah. Hey, that guy just fell down. Stand in front of the camera. They become stars. He literally was one of those guys. He, you know, he walked away from a chain gang. Yeah, and yeah. I, do, I do believe he was the first Hollywood actor to get arrested for marijuana. 
uh, in the late. Well, he wasn't the first, maybe not the first one to get arrested. The first one to kind of bounce back from it. Yeah. There was a, a a blonde that was with him, who uh, you know, and I, I'm I'm big on uh, the only thing I watch is cable news and black and white movies, <laughs> and uh, the rest of it's just garbage. Um, there was a blonde who was like one of those super like hot like you know b- uh, blondes real, st- and it ruined her career. I think she ended up uh, uh, committing suicide or something later on. But he, it did not ruin it. There was a famous picture of him sitting in a jail cell. Absolutely. Yeah. So he was able to bounce back from it. Yeah, I don't think he bounced back from a family for Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're writing on the sitcom. So yes, we're writing on the show. It's our first job. We're you know considered baby writers because it's our first our first chance. And um, the executive producers were guys who produced Love American Style. Which, Damn. Which means they didn't know about writing sitcoms either. <laughs> <laughs> They're like Tolstoy. <laughs> oh my god. So anyway, so um, it was it was a challenge because you know the basic premise, and then um, the rest of the cast was kind of interesting too. We had a um, young Ben Savage before Boy Meets World. Wow. He was the youngest kid. And then we had uh, the lovely, uh, awkward teenage girl, um, Juliette Lewis. Juliette, my favorite <laughs> thumb sucker. <laughs> now, there's a weird kind of six degrees of separation with Juliette Lewis because Robert Mitchum, a movie that didn't do well in its time because it was so dark, but right. it's become one of Cape Fear, the original Cape Fear. And I think Robert De Niro is one of the greatest actors who ever lived. But there was no way he did not have that darkness that Mitchum had. No, he didn't. He had no, to didn't. act the darkness. Yeah. Mitchum had the darkness. That the, Mitchum I, walks around with that darkness. I saw the first Cape Fear. Remember when it used to be there wasn't a bunch of cable and you're flipping around late at night? Yeah. And I'm I'm you're not even flipping, you're having to change channels. And all of a sudden I'm catching something and go, What the hell is this? <laughs> this is scary. But you want to hear something funny? One of the other early, um, baby writers on this show was a guy by the name of Phil Rosenthal, who went on to create yeah. Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah. Phil loved Cape Fear. That yeah. was his favorite movie. Yeah, it's a great film. And um, he had all of us writers, he invited us all of us writers over his house to come and watch it. You'd never seen it? At I'd this never point? seen it. And then I was seen it. But okay, but throw a bunch of comedy writers in a room watching Cape Fear. Yeah. And we're all just like laughing hysterically. Yeah. And just giving them the hardest times. Like, really? This is your favorite movie? It's like, How dare you laugh at a movie that had Martin Balsam oh in it? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so Robert Mitchum did the original Cape Fear. Juliette Lewis, who was, this right. was her first job. Later no, it was on, her second job. Her second job, early job. Yeah. Okay. Was then in the remake with Robert, uh, yeah, uh, Martin Robert De Niro. Pretty good movie. You know, yeah. Nolte yeah. doesn't pull it off that well. They, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, what? one of the problems with the, the remake is how they tried to complicate the couple. Like in, in the original Cape Fear, Gregory Peck and his wife were, they were good people. You should be talking this with Phil, because I don't really. Yeah. Know. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. So, all right. so you're writing a sitcom with Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum. And you think that your world is set. You think this is, did you go, this is going to go five years. This is going to syndication. Or, or did you go? <laughs> no, yeah. we knew it was a disaster going on. I mean, the truth is, is like, he didn't want to be there. You remember that film, uh, My Favorite Year with Peter O'Toole? Absolutely. Okay. And, and Larry from Balky and Larry from Perfect Strangers. Yeah. Um, and that's how Mitchum was handled. We had a guy who picked him up in the morning, mm-hmm. drove him to the studio, stayed with him the entire day until he's dropped off at night because they were worried about him drinking or doing yeah. something else. And so Mitchum didn't want to be there. He hated being there. He made it clear to everybody he hated being there. I, th- <laughs> I think in, in myself and my partner Dave at the time, we understood why he hated to be there. We got it. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So he took to us. Like He would pull us aside and tell us stories all the time and talk about going to the, the racetrack with Mickey Rooney and putting marijuana in the horses, you know, feedbacks before they go on <laughs> and stuff like that. He would tell us all these old stories. 
And so we got along fine with him, but he just he didn't want to talk to anybody. Julia Lewis and him never got along. Well, that's because she didn't believe in rehearsal. Julia Lewis didn't believe in rehearsal. She didn't believe in rehearsal. She said, no, why, I want to save it for performance. And so Mitchum used to walk around with a pen and stick her with it. <laughs> during, during the like a, like a writing pen? Like no, a, pin, a, a pin. A pin. Oh, like my a God. <laughs> yeah, sticker. That's how well they got along. Oh, my God. Yeah. He was that kind of guy. I mean, he was, he was you know. He, he was, he, you got what you got. You got him. You didn't get anything different. There's a, a in my mind, a legendary interview with Dick Cavett, I believe. Robert Mitchum did, where you, you do a whole hour. And he's sitting there drinking scotch and smoking on national television, talking about walking away from a chain gang. You know, he got busted down south yeah. or something, and when they, oh, just decided to leave. I mean, the guys, I bought a car because of Robert Mitchum. Which car? Fifty-seven Ford Fairlane, five hundred. Because there's a there was a cheapo movie that he did called uh, Thunder Road, right? And Thunder Road, he plays a moonshiner in Thunder Road, and they were they're running whiskey through the county, and what they drove in that car were fifty-seven Ford Fairlane five hundreds. That's what he drove. So when I was a little kid. 10, 11, 12, all the, all the, and we moved out to the country, all these redneck kids that were like, all these car guys, yeah, man, I got myself a 57 Ford, just like uh, Robert Mitchum, and when I turned 18, I had a chance to buy one, and they were, to, uh, to this day, it, for me, it's not the 57 Chevy, it's garbage, 57 Ford Fairlane 500, man, I had glass pack mufflers, so he was, uh, so how long did this show last, I'm taking it not long, no, just, we didn't, I think we got through six episodes or eight episodes for a season, yeah, and then it's gone, now you're out of work. Now, well, that's sitcom writer. Every sitcom writer's job. Yeah, it's like on to the next thing. Yeah. So here now, and I tell you why I'm asking this because it's kind of important. I have known individuals who got on a show and worked on a show, and when that show ended, never ever worked again. For it's just like like being a child star. They were right for that show. They, those are the people oftentimes who knew somebody. They like they 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 knew the star, and the star goes, "Well, you're going to write on my show." But then they were they couldn't really write another show. So you go from no job to well, what that happens with a lot of people is like if you go from hit show and hit show gets canceled, yeah, then those people all get sucked up as if they're all fantastic, yeah, and, so, and some of them are. But if you remember when Friends went off the air, all those writers got big deals, yeah, even the baby writers on the show, and and very few, if I don't I don't know exactly how many ever turned out to do something big again, yeah. Um, so after that. What happens? You, you know, your agent's like trying to shop you around and find you something new. You mm -hmm. know, we did. Um, I think we did a script for Parker Lewis Can't Lose, which was yeah. one of the new shows on Fox. Um, we did a script for Roseanne. Okay. Um, we were actually a weird story is kind of we were like the first writers hired on Roseanne by the executive producer Jay Daniel. Sure. But we were the ba still at the baby writer level, uh -huh. and then he had to hire an executive producer writer, which was Bob Meyer, and Bob uh -huh. went and filled up every level going down the hill. Yeah. Until he got to the baby writers, and then Jay goes, "Dude, you didn't hire any women yet. It's uh, Roseanne." Yeah. And so he had to hire. He hired a team of girls of women, not girls. We were boys, girls, whatever. Yeah. Hired a team of women, and which and Jay Daniels called up. Sorry, guys, you can't have the job anymore. <laughs> Cause, Jeez. Because I said I'll put on a wig and a skirt. And say, yeah. It's okay, but yeah. So, so we didn't get that job, which ended up we ended up getting onto dinosaurs, which was a great experience. So tell so yeah, tell us about that. Tell us about dinosaurs and how that was different from your first job or um, dinosaurs is different. Tell from us about the every show first. other yeah. show on Earth. Okay. Dinosaurs <laughs> was. Did you ever see Dinosaur? Yeah. yeah. That was one of like the first shows I remember <laughs> watching. <laughs> yeah. It is true. It's it's a yeah. um, you know, we, we were on uh, between Wonder Years and Doogie Hauser at the start until ABC decided to throw us on uh, TGIF. 
But Dinosaurs was a show developed by Michael Jacobs, who did My Two Dads, which is a nice, sweet family show, and uh, Jim Henson, who obviously the Muppets. Yeah. And the idea was uh, as an ecological metaphor for mankind today, because there are no dinosaurs left, so it's about environmental issues, how they're going to end up destroying their world, Uh what they do. And the corporate influence, you know, we had a corporation called We Say So. Um, there's a lot of inside jokes. It was very adult humor with big animatronic puppets. So everything was done with like a guy in a suit that's about eight feet tall with like different guys running his face and his eyes and hands. And wow. It was a mess. It was the most expensive <laughs> half hour to produce at, of all the shows at the time. Yeah. And we had, you know, you had restrictions. Like um, they were all wired. So the, so, the, so, yeah. the, so the big puppets couldn't walk that far. Yeah. Like, you know, four steps, stop. So, you know, you really have, you know, we talk about with sitcoms, you have certain constraints in the craft. Sure. This show had even crazier it's constraints. It had shackles. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we were up there, you know, people compared us to The Simpsons. Well, we were all going, geez, if we could just, like, say we're going to be in London and draw London, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. yeah. You know, we have what we have. We have the house, we have the work, and the work office. That's it. Yeah. That's all we have. Did Marty Croft ever show up? No, Marty Croft. Thank <laughs> God. No, no, no. Sid and Marty Croft. <laughs> no. You ever see that, that reel of outtakes? No. Somewhere out there, I don't have any more. I used to have a video of it. Yeah. The, the HR Puffin stuff outtakes. Really? Kids. Kids, you got to find that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, you, you weren't going to show. Now, something I didn't touch on, and I, I just got to, from conversations we had with you previously, you know, you had a partner. You went into this with someone. As opposed to it being a solo project, what do you? What are the benefits and what are the the the, the not benefits of writing with a partner? Well, my my partner was Dave David A. He goes by David A. Kaplan professionally. Um, him and I we were best friends. You know, okay. so it wasn't just a partner. It yeah. wasn't just like finding someone to write with. The advantage of writing with a partner, I think, is like you never put out a first draft. Okay. Because you're always bouncing ideas off of each other. Gotcha. And um, and the best partnerships work with people with contrasting styles. Okay. You know, it's like, you know, he was really good. He's really good joke writer. Okay. You know? um, I was more of like story conflict, crea- uh-huh. creating like, the you know, where's the funny in the scene without, yeah. without the punchline. Gotcha. So for us, that's the way it worked a lot. Um, and so, and it's also some, you know, the business can be really hard and yeah. heartbreaking yeah. and mind-screwing. Are we allowed to curse here? We are, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mind-fucking? Yeah. <laughs> I've been good. Mom, if you're listening, I've been yeah. good. Okay. Now, <laughs> you know, we never tell people that they can, but they can. Because yeah. when I tell people they can, then it just becomes, you know, it becomes a Friday fuck fest. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and, and did I, you ever see Dustin Hoffman when he did um, the Jonathan Ross show in, 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 on BBC? The no, first time no, he did it? No. Um, Hoffman goes, so I can say fuck here, right? And Jonathan Ross, yeah, we say it all the time. He goes, okay, fuck, 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 fuck. And he did it like for 30 seconds. Uh, <laughs> it's like, because you can, right? Yeah, because you can, yeah. <laughs> I can. Yeah. You know, and then for me, because of most of the uh, um, venues in the world I work in, you can. And since it was so much a part, I grew up uh, working class, inner city Catholic. So fuck was an adjective, an adverb, a verb, a noun, a pronoun. Yeah. And I've really tried to move away from it here at this point in my life because I'm going, there's got to be a more interesting word to get the same thing. That's for me. But if you fucking but sometimes say there fuck, isn't. Fucking but sometimes say fuck. there isn't a better word. I'm saying the fuck. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. In Europe, it, I I've always worked as a joke writer yeah. that there is a better word. Now there will come a point if I go, there is no better word. Now 
if I get a little nervous or start talking fast, I start throwing it in nonstop. Sure. You can ask anybody who's seen me do stand-up over the years. It then beca- And it, once I say it once, I'll say it ten times. Right. So I always work now as a writer. As a writer, I always go, there's a better word. Now, if I get to the conclusion, there is no better word, I'll use the word. It's not right. like, it's like, oh, I, we don't want to hear that. Yeah. You know, so. I think in writing, it's different than in. In, in fucking writing, it's fucking different. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't read as well writing, but when you yeah. hear someone say it, like yeah. you said, it has so many different meanings. Yeah, yeah, it's become that. So, um, so after dinosaurs, then after that, di- well, here's the thing about dinosaurs. I want to go back to dinosaurs okay. because I give it credit for teaching me a lot. The one thing that Michael Jacobs was really good about was he had the writers work on the set as the writers' um, uh, blah, 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 representative of the because sh- you see when you write a script on most shows you give it to the director and then they take it from there uh-huh. and sometimes things get lost between what the writers meant and what the director reads sure and the actors read so he always had the writers even the baby writers like myself go and sit on the set for the whole week of shooting to make sure that our vision of what the, we think all the show is about uh-huh. comes through on the set which no other show I've ever worked on gave the writers that opportunity, mm-hmm. and it's um, and it was shot like you know single camera, five days a week, on being on the set and you know giving notes to the actors, um, which is kind of weird because you're giving notes to a puppeteer who isn't the actual voice actor who's going to come in you know three weeks later. Wow! So, um, but the puppeteers who are doing the the lip sync have to kind of imitate the guys who are going to be doing it later. It was a big mess, but it gave us the opportunity to see how things work on stage yeah which makes you a better writer if you know how things actually work on stage that gives you you it's part of the craft you, that's what i'm saying is if someone gives you a script as a writer saying what do you think and it's got three extra sets it's like no it's a waste yeah. of time i'm not going to read it because you've already gone beyond what what any show's going to sure. do for you well you know i, I had a, a an acting coach one time that said if you were to be a, a good actor take a writing class you're to be a good writer take an acting class he goes, that is so much of the problem in our business is the writers don't understand the problems of the actor and the actor doesn't understand the problems of the writer. Well, because they don't mix. You yeah. Know? And the thing is, and as a writer, you know, if you can, just go sit on the stage. Like, you know, instead of going home, if you have nothing to do in the afternoon, instead yeah. of going home, go and sit on the stage and just sit and watch what people are doing. Sure. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to interrupt. Yeah. But we were given the, not only like the authority to give notes, we were like expected to make sure that everything got done the way it was supposed to, and then it even went as far as we were gi- we were involved in the editing. Mm-hmm. We would be given the edits so we can look at it and give notes on editing. Basically, basically because the executive producer didn't want to do any of the shit in all fairness, because uh-huh. usually the executive producer is the one who sits through this with a couple other people. And then when even we um, the early shows were scored like with a full orchestra. Wow. Well, I don't know full orchestra, but like you know 30, 40 people, yeah. and we would go to the scoring sessions. And, like, you know, they'd be doing the music for the episode. And, we, you know, sometimes there was one time I remember it's like, you know, we pulled over um, Ray Colcord, who's a very famous, you know, musical writer, um, did a lot of shows and movies. And it was like, Ray, that's a funny moment. And you're going, like, sad. You're going, he goes, dun, 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 oh, he goes, sorry, I missed that. And, okay, like, yeah. and he's literally like, like a savant, just quickly writing like 18 different parts for different instruments. And boom, and they change it. No other writer I know has ever had that experience at that yeah. level. Yeah. So it was a great teaching instrument a great learning instrument for us and you know and we took advantage but the thing is about dinosaurs there weren't any 20 year old writers on the show they didn't Uh, hire any 20 year olds uh you know and that's the thing is a lot of shows they're hiring guys straight out of Harvard straight out of whatever someone's cousin someone's nephew there aren't there are 
maybe more now because everything's exploded and there's more opportunity. Yeah. But back then it was like, you know, everyone was young uh -huh. and they didn't have life experiences, so they didn't know how to deal with things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is what gave Dave and I an advantage because we'd had businesses, we'd worked in businesses, we traveled a bit. Yeah, it's something to call upon. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, if, if you study uh, pop music, if you study like uh, uh, Dylan, or if you study The Grateful Dead, if you study The Beatles, you find out how deep they were in the paint with their knowledge of previous music. Yeah. Even though their music oftentimes then blew away that previous music. I mean, when The Beatles came along, everything that they loved was, you know, Chuck Berry wasn't getting on the radio anymore after Absolutely. The Beatles. You know, uh, Buddy Holly, of course, was dead. But, I mean, the, the music they loved, the music that the Rolling Stones loved wasn't going to get it on the radio anyway because they like they like black artists but it but their their knowledge and their experience and what they had studied was so deep into pain and oftentimes i find especially in comedy sometimes in writing uh, it's people who have no experience and all they have is opinion and their opinion then uh, it has no legs well but a lot of times their opinion is also coming off of other comics they've watched i mean there was a whole time when i moved out of the country in the late 90s yeah. There were a lot of shows that were like, you know, you'd watch a sitcom, it's like, they're just doing, you know, what All in the Family did 20 years ago. They're doing what Mary Tyler Moore did, you know, three yeah. years ago. People who, are, who learned from other sitcoms as opposed to learning learning from life. Yeah, it, it waters down. In, in, in Sometimes you get like, obviously Quentin Tarantino loves movies and Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, but he was able to take it and then turn it into something new. But to, all, to a degree, but now he's like... I yeah. think he's hit a, he's plateaued. I, I do too. I, I think that he's gotten to the point where now he's just re redoing his old his favorite movie ideas. Yeah, you know, I, I I went back and watched Jackie Brown again recently, and I liked it a little better than I did the first time. But it didn't grab me the first time. It, right. It was just it was it was you know what I thought it was. I thought it was turgid. So uh, <laughs> someone asked me what I thought of. I go it's turgid, and that's the kind of words I like to use so that people I don't want to talk to stop talking to me. It's because you're out here in Scottsdale, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if the rest of the world knows what Scottsdale really is. Do they? Um, they have a vague recollection of it. Yeah. How would you describe it? Well, there's a way that the world sees Scottsdale and what Scottsdale actually is. How do you think the world sees Scottsdale? They see it as like a big nipple. You know, because Scottsdale is party and strip joints and... and uh, 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 rich white people, but it, it seemed maybe okay. But that all seems pretty accurate. Go on. No, because it's much more than that. You don't. You, it, it, this is what people don't understand about Scottsdale. Let me explain what Scottsdale. And people don't understand about the tax system in Arizona. I mean, I, I don't want to go too deep in this today. Okay, but why do we have a hard time attracting business here, but have an easy time attracting personal millionaires here? Because this state is designed to be a tax haven of sorts for wealthy individuals. And because of that, you don't know. You don't. Most people don't realize who lives up there. I'm not talking about South Scottsdale. I'm not talking right. about Old Town. Okay, that's the playground. That's right. what people see as the playground. They have never been in the administration building. This. There are people that the wall. The people who own Walmart live here. They live here. They live up the road from where we are. You know, all these major sports stores who are all multimillionaires of all different. All these major businessmen. All these entertainers live here because. The ta personal taxes are so low. So this is actually, and if you look at the laws that get passed in the state, go, I don't understand. How come they didn't let Tesla sell their cars here if they were to build a Tesla factory here? The people who run it don't want it to be anything other than it is. It has become very similar to Oklahoma and Arkansas, where a few powerful people actually control the state. Now, we, we might break from those bonds because of our proximity to California. 
exploding growth. So I don't know how the rest of the country sees it, but that's what it is. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. That's the funniest thing. You shouldn't ask Rob, me to help us out here, man. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> That's Rob's contribution. <laughs> hey, you know what? Uh, uh, hey, and, and you're saying your set didn't go well the other night? <laughs> <laughs> He's like the Marlon Brando of comedy. Hey, the two guys walking through the bar. Uh, he goes, Charlie, you should have helped me, Charlie. What the hell's going on? Is he drunk? You know, that's him sober. Um, we're going to take a break. We come back and talk about some things uh, that I think you should be doing moving forward. And uh, we come right back. About, we're not going to get to all of it today. You're going to have to come back. That's all there is to it. But when we come back, I'm going uh, to make a request of you, and uh, uh, and then we'll be uh, wrapping up. You are listening to ComedySchoolsRadio.com. We'll be right back. Rock out with Rob. Uh, are we back? What's going on? Uh, the song just ended. So the song ended, so we're back. We're, we're nothing if not professional here. I'm going to tell you that right now. Right, uh, I, want, I want everyone to write in and tell us what you thought of that piece of music. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Who was that, Rob? I was Gary Clark Jr. Gary, yeah, that's right. It's, uh, I always forget that. You was, there, was there words in there? Or was that just an instrumental? Instrumental. Okay. Yeah, that was just instrumental. So tell us a little bit about Gary Clark Jr., will you please? Um, he's a black guy who plays guitar. Yeah, I just. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I only let Rob talk with, with sound effects. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, he's a black guy who plays guitar. Is he? Yeah, man. Ooh. So uh, that's my that's my one big sound effect. I can't I, hear it. So I, I spent thousands. I can't hear thousands to have that one sound. You you didn't hear that? I didn't hear that. No. Like, no, it doesn't work on these. Oh, and I'm not wearing no. headphones. Oh, that's I right. Can hear it. Yeah, Shirley. <laughs> Shirley can hear it, and that's all that matters. How did it sound, Shirley? It sounded good. It's uh, all it's all spacey. It is. Yeah, it's all echoey and spacey. And okay. Stuff. Yeah, like. Like spacey man. So really, that's all you got is he's a black guy who plays guitar. Yeah. That's yeah. That's uh, that's that's it. That's, that's, that's on his um his resume, he's, right? He's, he's the Gary. It's his Coop- album cover. It's close enough. Rob is the Gary Cooper of stand-up comedy. <laughs> <laughs> he's a man of few words. Very wow. effective Jeez. in westerns. Terrible in stand-up comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you had to define that because, like, the, you know, the 13 people listening would have no idea who Gary Cooper is. Yeah, you listen. By the time it downloads, they'll be up to 30. Well, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, we're we're in our our influence has has a great reach. So, uh, speaking of our influence, man, you know, you've been sharing a lot of cool stuff with us about uh, sitcom writing, and um, uh, a lot of people in this town. There are a lot of very talented people in Phoenix. I'm just going to say that, and uh, I I've been amazed in all my travels throughout the country all these years that I found that this city uh, you when you think of creativity in cities you're gonna think of San Francisco possibly Seattle I'm not I'm, I'm taking New York and LA out of the mix where people go okay not where people go where people are where they come from you know think of Chicago. San Francisco Chicago all right and people don't think of Phoenix that way although we have one of the most vibrant local comedy scenes in the nation we've had more people go from this city to television than uh, any I can think of right now. So, uh, and uh, a lot of opportunities for individuals to do live performance and learn live performance. Uh, and there's uh, all the way from just an open mic night at a bar down in Central Phoenix where you can go up and do whatever you want and just, you know, reach around blindly and hope you find something, which is a way that some people do it, all the way to workshops. So, I think what would be valuable, Brian, to people here in town. 
uh, is if you would consider, okay, and we'll talk about this next couple of weeks, if you would consider offering, I and I've asked Jeff to do it, Jeff Abagov, and we talked to Kevin Rudy. About, Kevin is, uh, um, for a variety of reasons, can't. He doesn't live in the country anymore. Jeff is currently writing novels, and we've been looking for someone who uh, can really help people who want to be able to write scripts. Now, we, we've had some people that come to town for like a weekend and do a weekend thing. And I've been offered that in other cities uh, with what I do. But I want you to consider, and if you would, let us kind of uh, 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 help you promote a sitcom or even a writing. It could be two things. It could be a sitcom writing workshop and a writer's lab. Uh, if you would consider doing that and think about that. And if you're going to, let us kind of help you uh, let people know about it and, and help you move it forward. Would you think about doing that for us? Yeah, I would consider doing that. Um, I think they'd have to be separate because sitcom writing is different than movie writing. Yeah. It's different than stand-up comedy sure. writing. It's its 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 own form. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and that's, that's you know what? You have to learn the form and be funny. Yeah. You can't be one or the other. Yeah. So th it's that much harder. But yeah, if, I mean, I, when, I, when we took those classes with the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop and they walked us through every step of the way most people know what is. Yeah. a story and a b story is yeah and some some shows don't have a and b stories yeah. uh -huh. and some shows have a teaser that has nothing to do with the show if you remember yeah. cheers cheers opened up with a joke that had nothing to do with the show yeah yeah right and uh -huh. that's and that's because when they went to syndication they cut off that minute and a half and they got, and they're on time God, As, oh, man, see? yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, it, you know, the industry changes stuff, and now they put stuff back because they put it on Netflix. They can put everything on it if they want. Yeah. Sometimes they don't ever put the stuff back. Some of the best stuff is gone from shows uh -huh. because it had to be cut for time. Yeah, but there is a there is a form. You know, when when I teach stand up workshops, I tell people, I go, I go, stand up comedy is a unique delivery system for humor, and people don't understand that. People go, I just want to talk. Are they? Uh, and and you and I have both seen. Uh, I'm sure you have. We haven't we haven't talked about this, but I'm sure you have the person who was successful as a uh, radio host or as an actor who then goes on stage at a stand-up comedy club and gets no laughs. We've both seen that. Yes. Yeah. And 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 what it is is they don't understand the form they're in. That it's a whole different thing. And and a lot of people don't understand about stand-up, which is why there's for every one good stand-up comic there is, there's like about 75 that are bad because they don't bother to learn it. Okay. You think the number is that that low, seventy five? I'm I'm, I'm, I'm I'm being nice because I'm known. I mean, I'm known for not being nice. Oh. Uh, and Rob's in the room. Okay. Yeah. And no. Rob's in the room. <laughs> no. That, I was, and no. it's the same thing with writing. There, there people. There, there would be people. I guarantee you, the story you told about having your 120 page script, who would instead of going, oh, we have to cut this down to 30 or 40 pages, would be pissed off angry try to force it on people go you don't understand man this is my art and don't understand that if they don't have if they don't know the form it they can't do it yeah it's like imagine if you were uh the rock band yes and you went into like you know top 40 radio and saying well we have an eight minute song yeah they're just not going to take it yeah yeah <laughs> you know it's like we have yeah. we have close to the edge it's a brilliant you know it's a brilliant yeah. piece of music but you know if i can't play it in two and a half minutes you know casey Kasem ain't gonna play that stuff yeah yeah well you know and it's it, there is always those people who could they can break the rules i mean dylan broke the rules with like a rolling stone where he turned in a four minute and 35 second song uh, but the song was so big and so powerful that they were able to do that but dylan but here's the thing that i explain to people when they're trying to go i'm gonna I read a great story of Jerry Garcia, where they said, and they said to Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead, you guys never sold out. He goes, it's not like we didn't try. <laughs> he goes, we wanted a hit record so damn bad. Yeah. He goes, our problem was we were so zonked out at the time, 
we do an 11 minute song with no vocals and go that's going to be the single that's how he, <laughs> he goes that's how stoned we were then yeah and he was stoned during the interview absolutely yeah so um uh but they knew the rules garcia knew how to write songs he started out playing folk music on a banjo sure so uh Dylan, like ray davies from the kinks yeah he knew like what song structure was i mean he loved all those songs all yeah. those pop songs and he didn't and he wrote songs that fit the structure but in his own voice and that's what you have to do in a sitcom. Yeah, and, and Larry David kind of was able to break the rules of sitcom because he knew sitcom. And um, you know what? Some people say he broke the rules. I don't know if he broke the rules. He just did it well. He did it well. Yeah, he did. It, he did it darn well. I mean, there's been shows that weren't really about much. I mean, I mean, Three's Company. Come on. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, was what about, was that really about? Yeah, it's about a guy trying to pretend he was gay so he can screw the two girls. I told you my story. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if you if you remember. Yeah, about uh, uh, the first time I ever saw Three's Company. And yeah. I, I was sitting with uh, uh, two guys. There weren't hell, there were no Hell's Angels in St. Louis, but there was the Al Forsteros and God's people. And I was with two friends, guys I'd grown up with who now were at like 1% motorcycle. And they invited me over to this party because, hey, Steve's old lady's having a baby. It's not his baby, but he's going to raise it because bikers have ethics. And uh, <laughs> they had a keg and stuff. I think someone got beat up autom- initially right away. And I'm sitting on a couch in this kind of beat up living room between these two bikers. They go, Vizic, you need to watch this show. It's a good show. And I go, yeah, I go, yeah, I go, see that guy? And I go, yeah, I go, uh, he's, he's, yeah, he's banging those two chicks. And I go, really? I go, they showed it? And he go, no, but, you know, he goes, why else would you live with two chicks? <laughs> but he's got to act like a queer or he's going to get kicked out. It's really good. It's like these guys, are just, they just beat somebody up, sold meth, robbed someone, and they're going, it's a good show because this guy's back. And I go, it was Three's Company. Yeah. First time I saw it, I was with bikers. Yeah. <laughs> It must have been better then. <laughs> well, I'm like a bikers. I mean, you know, it's not. I mean, if you don't laugh, will they kick your ass? Yes. Okay. Well, yes, they so would. So it must have been fucking hilarious. You don't think it's funny, huh? <laughs> you know, you had to think about the time. We had two very pretty girls. What a revolutionary idea that was for television. Unmarried. We, we'd just been a couple of years away from uh, the Dick Van Dyke show and separate beds we in the married Tyler Moore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. And that was classic, yeah, right? Yeah. That's yeah. one of the best of all time. Yeah, all that stuff was happening. You know, I mean, Three's Company was a revolutionary idea, though, where it was uh, a man living with two women and they were unmarried. Yeah, then you moved on to My Two Dads, which I said Michael Jacobs yeah. produced, about a woman who got wasted and screwed two different guys, yeah. had a baby and said, and just dropped them off at the guy's house and said, you take care of them. I don't know which one of you is the dad. There has been That's a, where America went to. There's been a cultural <laughs> quickening, isn't there? Yes. Well, you know, you know, and my, that was considered a family show. Uh-huh. That's what always blew my mind. It's like, this isn't like cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and later on, what, what did that what did that show become later on? It became uh, um, Two and a Half Men. Two and a Half Men, yeah. Uh, and they were all really the odd couple with a kid. Yeah. That's what they were. Odd couple. With, it yeah. all comes back to Neil Simon. Yes. Absolutely. It all yeah. does. It all starts with Neil Simon. R. Ewing Kaufman, who wrote all the great lines for Groucho Marx. There you go. So, uh, hey, man, so I want you to think about that, okay, uh, and uh, keep us informed uh, uh, about your decision, and uh, if you do decide to do it, uh, how you'll be moving forward. But I think that's a component that I think that uh, the uh, the artistic and entertainment community in general, we have a really good acting coach in town. Linda Waymeyer is a fantastic acting coach. Uh, her politics are about 300, they're about 180 degrees from mine, okay, but we are very good friends. And she's a fantastic... We have a great acting coach in town. Uh, some people say we have a good stand-up comedy coach in town. Uh, really? Who's that? Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it, it's Bo Regard. <laughs> His name is Bo Regard. Right. Uh, uh, we, ha- we have some other really good workshops in town. What we don't have... Uh, uh, we have a good uh, a guy named uh, Matthew Deering has a, 
uh, kind of a good uh, a youth program in town. Uh, my friend Ken Ferguson and, and uh, Dave Speck have great improv. We don't have someone that can show people, and it's my, for people who just want to do stand-up, I go, you got to learn how to do more nowadays. Like my, uh, the young, the people who study with me and then move to Los Angeles, they go, what should I do? I go, take a serious acting class. Absolutely, acting class. I mean, you took acting classes? I you did. studied Stella Adler, right? St- Elise Strasberg. Elise Strasberg. Yeah. I, I, His wife. Whatever. That's the way they got along. <laughs> they hated each yeah. other. <laughs> no, but I think it is important. Um, stand-up isn't just standing up and telling jokes. Yeah. It really isn't. You, you have to come up. You have to be a different person. I mean, I've read so much, and I've talked to so many stand-ups. I've worked with many stand-ups. And the transition from being a stand-up to being on a TV show yeah. is huge. Yeah. It's, it's not just, it's not, you know, and also, Seinfeld made it look easy. And also the writing of it, and we touch on it, and this is what we're going to talk about. Uh, what time? How much time do we have? We don't have, okay, I don't, we don't, I don't think we have enough time to really delve into this as much as I want to. But uh, I just want to touch on it a little bit. So I know people, I've known really great stand-up comics who could never keep a job on a sitcom or even get a sitcom. And I, my friend, uh, Jeff Abagov, who's a good right. friend of mine, good friend of the shows, uh, talked to me. When, and Jeff is, he's pretty blunt without realizing how blunt he is. He's one of those guys. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, he is a good guy. But he, he'll say stuff and go, whoa, why'd you say that? He go, well, it's, it's true. And he, he asked me one time, he goes, all right, I'm going to ask you a question. I go, what? He goes, I've hired you to write on a show. And I think, Jeff's going to hire me to write on a show. Jeff doesn't do that anymore. And he goes, I'm going to hire you to write on a show. He goes, we've got, uh, we've got the story, and there's a joke that makes us all fall out of our chairs. He goes, but it has nothing to do with the story. He goes, does it stay in or go out? I go, well, it makes everybody fall out. He goes, that's the problem with comics on sitcoms, Tone. I go, what? He goes, people watch to attach to the character and the story. And you guys always, he goes, not always, because my problem with stand-ups is they always want to put a joke in. They had nothing to do with anything. Absolutely. We call those joke jokes. Yeah. 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 If the joke doesn't come from character, it's not a good joke. Yes. Now, there are some shows that do very well with joke jokes. There's no question about it. Yeah. There's comedians that do well with joke jokes, right? Yeah. That just tell jokes. Yeah. You know, but... My favorite comedians are the ones that tell stories that, you know, yeah. are in character. Chris Rock and Louis C.K. Sure. You know, Louis Black, all over the place, you know. He doesn't tell joke jokes. Everything comes from his attitude. But now what do you think of, say, Stephen Wright? I see Stephen Wright, I can take him or leave him. Okay. I mean, to me, okay. it's like, he's just like, I, I get it. Like, uh-huh. um, what's the guy? The guy, the guy, Henny Youngman, right? Yeah. Total joke jokes, right? Absolutely. And, and he, but he gets funnier the longer he goes. Yeah. Because now you're getting into his character of the guy that's only you're into telling his character. And exactly. that was Stephen Wright's problem: is the character could not hold your interest. No, because it was dumb. a non-emotional character was not going to hold your interest right. for an entire hour, and no one understood that. People, I don't know why he's bigger because there was nothing to attach. Henny right. Youngman, Rodney Dangerfield, we attached the game. Even right. you well, go back da- to Dangerfield, you know, even told he told jokes about himself. He jo- told jokes about his character, about his life, and he threw joke jokes in there, but they were all kind of related. Well, yeah, he, he did joke jokes yeah. related to the general topic of I get no respect. Exactly. I'm a loser. Jack Benny, everything, I'm cheap. Yeah. You know, uh, Henny Youngman was unique, and it was just, <laughs> He but he was that guy that walked in the room and just told you the worst jokes over and wouldn't stop. Uh, he just and turbo. You. What it was, it was like a turbo <laughs> thing. Was. Like, have you ever driven a turbo car? And yeah, it's yeah. just going faster and you go, oh, I, yeah. you know, and even if you pull off the gas, it keeps going for a while because the engine, what yeah. the engine's doing. Yeah. He, he was Kids out there, if you go listen, look up some Henny Youngman, you're going to want to stop it after about 30 seconds to two minutes. Let it go for 10 minutes and tell me you're not dying of laughter after yeah, that. Dying of laughter. He was the one who said, when my rhythm is right, 
I can read out of the phone book and make him laugh. Yeah. What people don't understand about him is he was like a musician because working off a rhythm. Absolutely. You know, it, it was with him. It was the beat. It was take my wife, please. Yeah. He was. He was. He was the, <laughs> he was the disco. He was the disco of comedy. No, <laughs> the melody no, let's didn't. Not go there. The melody let's didn't matter. It was just the beat. No, let's not go there. Okay. Disco. Okay. Fuck so music. <laughs> <laughs> That's another yeah. show. Every, listen, all right. Every once in a while, don't you hear a little Gloria Gaynor and go, damn it. Now uh, that it's... Here's how I look at Disco. I look at it like I do John Wayne. Now that he's dead, it's okay to like him. Uh, well, now that Disco's dead, I can go back and listen. But the, what do you call this new EDM stuff? It's Disco, right? right? You're going to tell me that you don't like Love to Love You, Baby? I'm not saying anything alive on uh, the radio. Uh, here. <laughs> love to Love You, Baby. I have a reputation, Tony. Uh, <laughs> Come on! Look, you got your woman here. I don't have one right now, so I don't, I don't have to admit I like that. It's like Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. Every guy goes, oh, I love that album. No guy loved that album. They bought that album because their girls love the album. No man walked into a, a Tower Records on Sunset and goes, I gotta have Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. No guy ever did that on his own. His girlfriend goes, oh, I love that record. That could be. When you look <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of stuff that they did. I was a Fleetwood Mac fan before Buckingham yeah. Knicks. I was all. When I was a kid, when I was 15, I had tickets to see Fleetwood Mac at a small theater in St. Louis. They were canceled yeah. due to lack of They were a rock band back then. They were a blues rock band. Yeah. They were totally blues, all Chicago blues. I love that stuff. Then they morphed into kind of a. Um, when they got like a Danny Crowain and uh, um, uh, Bob Welch, when they were doing. And they, and they brought in uh, um, the female piano player. Christy McVie. Christy McVie. And they were doing like Sentimental Wind and, yeah. and uh, Hypnotized and stuff. You know, and, and so they were very, very good. And then Buckingham Knicks came on. Look, it's catchy pop. It's yeah. great catchy pop. Yeah, it's you a, know, it's 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 chick music. Ario Speedwagon, chick music. I hate Ario Speedwagon. <laughs> I, I I can't stand Ario Speedwagon. I grew up in St. Louis. They were the opening act for for fifty percent of the bands that I saw. And you would just go, all right, I'm gonna go get high in Holland. <laughs> They, they had like three good songs, which they no, they had no good songs. They, come on, they had three good songs. End of the show. I was dating a girl. She loved Aria Speedwagon, so I had to take her. Yeah, that's why I bought the records because I had to buy the records. Rob, you know about this stuff, right? No, no. Okay, <laughs> he has no women nor no. records. No, <laughs> you never bought a, a a record or a piece of music because your girlfriend likes it. No. Have you had a girlfriend? Yeah. Okay. No, but you never like. She no. goes, oh, I gotta see this. Gone to a show like that. So you never gone to a show because she wanted to see it that you did. I went to my first concert like a year and a half ago. What'd you go see? Uh, the Goo Goo Dolls. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know what's worse. You know? <laughs> a man with makeup. <laughs> <laughs> that explains Rob I <laughs> in one <laughs> sentence. I hated Oreo Speedwagon. I hated Ted Nugent. You know, Ted, Nug Ted Nugent was just flash and nothing. I mean, Ted Nugent was Kiss. Yeah, it was just it was just crazy. Now, in all honesty, when I was twelve. I bought his first record, but it wasn't. It was the Amboy Dukes, and right. they had they had this psychedelic song yeah. called "Journey to the Center of the Mind." That I thought, so I bought, I saved up and bought that album when I was like three ninety nine, and my allowance was two bucks a week, whatever it was. And so, uh, but he was just garbage, and he was another one always opening. You're going to see somebody, and there's and opening Ted Nugent or opening yeah. Oreo Speedwagon, and I and I hated those people. Yeah. So, um, but now you like Ted. Now you're a big Ted Nugent fan. Uh, you know. <laughs> I, you know, Ted, he is the <laughs> elevation of idiocy in a way that uh, I went, okay, well, it'll stop with him. We will never elevate another idiot to this level, and now there's an election going on, and we've elevated a new idiot. You know? <laughs> All right. Listen, man. I you almost you, made it. I almost you made almost it. almost made it. Hey, this is true. I don't know if you saw this, okay, as far as the polls go. This, is, this might give you time to pause, okay? Uh, that 
Donald Trump is leading by 20% with men over 40 who would wear a clip-on tie and blue jeans to their daughter's wedding. So, um... That would grab their daughter's ass. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Men who are jealous when their daughter's getting married because now they've lost that special friend. He he leads he leads with that group. Also, men who wear leather vests with a lot of buttons on them, That's he's running away with that vote. That was your old people back in St. Louis, right? Your old biker guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna vote for him because he kicks some ass. Yeah. You know what? We're gonna vote for him. I'll tell you why. And and they did the two finger point. This this point. <laughs> no, no, they did the whole hand point. Yeah. I'm gonna tell you why. Okay, because he kicks some ass. Yeah. That's why we're voting for him. It's time time this country started kicking some ass again. Give me a beer. You want beer, man? <laughs> You're not voting for her, are you? <laughs> you know, it's like people think they'll convince you by their intonation. You're not voting for her. Well, now that you put it like that, I see the light. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Now wow. that you've sounded so... I never so heard it that explained so eloquently. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> it's people... It's the kind of people where, where you... Where you're, They'll go, tell me why. And you tell them, they go, oh, come on. Like, you go, you know what? Now that you said, oh, come on like that, I understand... I have now seen the light. That's it right. was your awe. Come on, it that's, was. That's Facebook in one sentence. It is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I got to stop. I do because I'll just see someone. I go, all right, this guy. I'm just going to torture this guy. You know? <laughs> and I'll just zigzag through a thread. Yeah, but you know what? It's like the thing about Trump and Trump voters. They don't care. They, they just don't care. They don't care. They don't care. You know. It's like you know, and that's that's just the world we live in right now. You know, one of the frightening things about this country, in one level, is that it's. It, people don't understand how hard it is to screw up this country. Okay? Look look how badly things screwed up in, say, 2008, and we kind of pulled out of it without a complete collapse of the economy and the government. There were not military trucks going down the street. There were no curfews. People would bullhorn. Uh, some people would argue there's military trucks going down every street. The police are over-militarized. You know, I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. But you didn't see that where you, you know... Uh, at the worst of it, and, and I, I met Shirley right around that time. At the worst of it, you still somehow found yourself having dinner at the mall. Maybe not in the nice restaurant, maybe in the food court, but you were still going out. So, so wait a second. You're saying you met Shirley like when the world was about to end. So was yeah. it one of those kind of things? Look, I, you know, the world's going to end, so how about it, honey? Now, is, this is, the way, is this the way you guys got together? This is, here's, a, here's a true story. Here's a true story. Uh, Shirley had moved up from Tucson. Uh, to take a job uh, uh, with a, um, uh, a big department store that was opening a new one between Phoenix and uh, uh, Casa Grande, and she was managing that. I was in complete collapse. Be- wait, between Phoenix and Casa Grande? Well, in Casa Grande. Okay. okay. She, she, and uh, and uh, I had just gone into complete, I'd gone from having a condo in Los Angeles and a theater in Scottsdale and an investment property in Maricopa to just... <laughs> Yeah, you know what? You know what? It's turned out to be a people great don't know how funny that is. Yeah, <laughs> and now people don't realize what a great investment it is because it has worked out incredibly well. But I had to walk. I had, I had to go walk, crawl across a lot of broken glass for it to be here. So she wrote me, going, "I'm here, and I see that you do shows. You do shows out in Pinal County." And I said, "No, I do them in Scottsdale." And her and some friends came and saw one of my shows, and she and I started talking. We talked for a long time before uh, I used to talk to her driving back and forth between Los Angeles and Phoenix. But I was in bad a bad place. I'd gone from I'd gone from uh, you know what I've got the whole dinner. It's on me to I can't eat dinner. One <laughs> of those when you when you run your own business or entertainment business where it totally collapses. Yeah. Totally collapses and you're like Jesus. 
Um, the last time it had been that bad, I was doing a play in Los Angeles. I was 24, and I was getting really good reviews, but I wasn't being paid. And I had all these plays in my apartment, and I'd figure out who'd lent them to me and find a reason to come over to their house right around dinner time to return the play. <laughs> Which is a classic actor story. Now, yes. here, here's where we were. One night she calls me up. I told her, well, let's get together on this particular night. And uh, then I was just going to cancel. I was just going to cancel on her. I, and not because of her, just because I was not in that place. And she goes, well, I was, I was planning. I was already ready to go. I go, look. I said, I'm going to drive out to this house that I don't want. And my plan is to jump off the roof. Okay, now if you want to come out, <laughs> spend time with me, you can, but I ain't no company. She goes, she goes oh, I think I'm coming out. It sounds like a hot date. <laughs> <laughs> How bad are things going for you, Shirley? Uh, Jesus. Either going to save him or he was going to jump. <laughs> yeah, that was oh. it. And she came out and, uh, and, it, and it took off from there. So yeah. She saved you. Yeah, I, I had someone tell me one time to go, sometimes what you think is the worst point in your life will be the best point in your life. And one thing that saved me during another difficult time was I was sitting one day and things were going badly as they will go up and down, up and down. And I went and I said to myself, I was sitting on the back porch, a little condo I had in L.A., not knowing I was going to pay the mortgage that month. And I go, wait a minute, things can get better. They're just not going to get better today. <laughs> as a matter of fact, they might get a little worse today, but this can all turn around. So I was at the, well, the lowest point in my adult life. I'm in my 50s. I'm a grown man. I got a daughter in college. I think I should be, you're at that point where you should be now cruising towards something. And I'm flatlined, you know. And that's when I met Shirley. And um, now we're sitting here in this Scottsdale Financial Center <laughs> in Old Town Scottsdale. With all the rich people around us. With all the rich people, some of who I have more money than. <laughs> and I've got Rob and I got Shirley, and I got you, and I've got ComedySchoolsRadio.com. And you and I have some fun stuff coming up in the uh, not near future, but in the distant future. Some stuff that we're working on. We'll be telling people about it, uh, maybe in the closer than distant future. Be telling people about it as that moves forward. Uh, and uh, like I said, in the next couple of weeks, I want you to think about bringing a workshop here to town. I know some people go, I don't know if I... If there's anybody in this city who can help people understand how to write for television right now, of all the people I know, and I've been looking for that person, you're him. So I want you to think about it, and we'll maybe talk about it next week or the week after, okay? Okay. You okay. Where are we at, Cheryl? Where are we at on time? Are we wrapping up? Yeah, three minutes. We got three minutes? Okay. So listen, tomorrow on the show, we have the very funny and talented Andy Woodhall. We're going to tell you about other great things going on in local comedy here in the greater Phoenix area. If you ever thought about getting involved, if you've gone to a stand-up show and you watch it go, I'd like to try that, there's a couple of ways you could do it. You can go to one of uh, 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 a myriad of open mic nights throughout the city and try it like that. If you'd like to know a little bit about it before you do it, uh, there's something you could do on September 12th. Is that the correct date that I have? Yeah, September 12th. I'm doing a free introductory workshop to my stand-up comedy workshops. Uh, without bragging, these are the uh, workshops that take people from their very first day in a workshop to national television. On September 12th at 7.30 p.m. at the Tempe Center for the Arts, you can check it out absolutely free. No hard sell, no push. Don't even bring your wallet if you don't want to. You know, I know people, I've had people go, I didn't bring my wallet because I figured you're going to try to force money on Don't bring your wallet, okay? Come down and check out the free intro. See if we're for you. It's a great workshop. It's a great way to be introduced into this really, really, really fun business. 
and this really, really exciting local comedy scene. All um, right, if I can add one little bit, you say, um, don't bring your wallet, but if you are dark-skinned, remember we are in Phoenix and Joe Arpaio land, so you may want to have some identification just in case. <laughs> Shove it down your shorts. <laughs> that, 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 that's that's going to be my second song after Eat It While You're Pregnant called Shove It Down Your Shorts. So, uh, there, you know, you're an inspiring man, Brian. <laughs> All right, we just had a great conversation with Brian LePan, and uh, uh, you can download this. If you're listening to it live, uh, tell your friends if uh, they want to listen to it, then in a couple hours they'll be able to download it on ComedySchoolsRadio.com. It is now there for the world to listen to in perpetuity. Okay, that was, you know what, I had to think. That was one of those words, as I was forming a sentence, I'm going, will I be able to get that word out? Do it. It's a good word. It's All right. We will be back tomorrow at 9 a.m. Actually, 8.50 a.m. on Facebook, the show before the show. 9 a.m. ComedySchoolsRadio.com. Everybody listening, thank you very much. Everybody downloading. We're glad you did. We'll talk to you manana. Bye-bye.